And the appropriate response to anti-fat bias or fat phobia isn't to make everybody skinny. The appropriate response to lookism isn't to make everybody pretty. Except when I lived in South Korea, I found that it was completely logical to make yourself prettier because of the professional and personal and social costs if you didn't. You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast where we talk about diet culture, anti-fat bias, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soul-Smith. I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. Today, I am chatting with Elise Hugh, a journalist and podcast host of TED Talks Daily and the founding NPR Soul Bureau Chief. Elise has recorded stories from more than a dozen countries, mostly across Asia, as an international correspondent. She's also a mom of three and a human prone to freak injuries based in Los Angeles. And she is the author of the brand new book, Flawless, Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital, which we are here to discuss today. You guys, this book is fascinating. I could not put it down. If you have ever purchased a sheet mask or a baby foot peel or any other K-Beauty products, or if you've just been sort of aware of the absolute phenomenon of Korean beauty culture. This is such a deep dive. It's really done with so much compassion and wisdom, excellent research and reporting, telling the stories of Korean women navigating a culture with really strict beauty ideals, certainly strict weight ideals. We're going to get into all of it. There's just so much here to unpack, and I think a lot that is helpful in thinking about our own relationships with beauty and beauty work and activism around it. So here's Elise, but first a quick break. So I want to pause and tell you about the Burnt Toast Bookshop. If you're a regular listener, you've heard me shout out my beloved independent bookstore, Split Rock Books, a million times. Split Rock is owned by my friends Heidi and Michael Bender, and they have the most perfect shop cat named Georgie. And they are now the official hosts of the Burnt Toast Bookshop. To be clear, this is not a real brick-and-mortar bookstore, but it is its own official section over on their website, splitrockbks.com, where you can find every book we've ever recommended on the podcast. This includes every author I've interviewed, from Angela Garbez to Crystal Maldonado to Aubrey Gordon to Elise Hugh, who you're about to hear from in this episode. And it also includes collections of picture books, parenting books, books on puberty and aging, and every other topic that comes up here. And if you order your copy of Fat Talk from Split Rock, you can use the code FATTALK at checkout to take 10% off your order of anything in the Burnt Toast Bookshop. They ship everywhere in the United States, and they are the only place where you can get a book signed with any inscription you want by me. So this is just a win-win-win. It's a chance to support an amazing independent bookstore that gives so much to my community to get yourself or someone you love a signed copy of Fat Talk, plus a 10% discount on a huge list of other incredible books. And we are always updating the shop. Click the link in your episode description or go to splitrockbks.com slash bookstore. Thank you so much for supporting independent body liberation journalism and independent bookstores. So you went to Seoul for four years to be the NPR bureau chief there. What did you know about Korean beauty culture going into it? And did you kind of think there would be a book in it? Never. No, I did not think there was going to be a book in it at the time. And I still can't believe one exists. <laughs> Knowing my personality, <laughs> I, I have a very short attention span. And then I also don't like to write alone or even be alone with my thoughts. And mm. as you know... 
<laughs> there is some of that required. There is some of that. <laughs> a little. It's hard to get around that. So I didn't know a whole lot about Korea, period, when I got posted out there. And I think that was part of the motivation for the NPR bosses. They liked my journalistic style of sort of being a fish out of water and exploring a place and explaining it and just reporting it out sort of with the listener. And that was, gosh, the end of 2014 when we first started having conversations about opening up a Northeast Asia bureau. So by the beginning of 2015, never having set foot in South Korea before, I moved my husband, my toddler, my geriatric beagle, and two cats, and a baby in my belly all over to Seoul, a place where I hadn't so much as had a layover at the Incheon wow. airport. Wow. And part of the exciting remit for me was that it was Northeast Asia, a place where we kind of hadn't turned the lights on as a news organization before. We just really hadn't had anybody permanently posted there. So I would cover not just South Korea, but also North Korea and Japan. And what an exciting region. Yeah. And then there's a huge U.S. military presence there, too, that I think gets undercovered. I think half of all of U.S. military that's stationed overseas is in Korea and Japan. And yet I didn't know that. that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so there was so much to learn. What did I know about Korean beauty culture at the time? I knew that sheet masks were getting cool. And a lot of my friends who were the more sort of in the know hip ones, the ones that sort of read the cut every day and knew about (laughs) all the kind of coolest ingredients or the best sorts of treatments that were available, they were really into K-beauty culture Mm -hmm. already because Mm -hmm. K-beauty culture, as I found, is often not just years ahead, but a decade ahead when it comes to various skincare innovations. And so I knew about sheet masks. I knew a little bit about the packaging. I knew that Chinese tourists were going to Seoul a lot to try and load up on various products. And I knew about the plastic surgery. Mm. And I think that I really saw it as vanity at the time. I had my sort of Western judgmental attitude about it when I first got to Seoul. You really explode this concept of vanity and this myth that women engage in beauty work because we're shallow or we're looks obsessed. And you talk about understanding beauty work, whether it's skincare, plastic surgery, weight loss, all of it is really a survival strategy, particularly in a culture with high rates of lookism and fat phobia. It absolutely is. I mean, the entire concept, the word, the term lookism was new to me. And when we say lookism, obviously your listeners know, but it's appearance-based discrimination. And lookism works in all these insidious ways, obviously, to marginalize people, but also it can reward those who do focus on their appearance and do the work of improving it to better match the prevailing beauty culture and beauty standards of the day. Having good looks is framed as your personal responsibility. And so if you don't do the work to keep up your appearances, and obviously it's a very feminine look. You've seen Korean K-pop girl groups and those idols. And so that generally is the model for how a Korean woman should look. And if you don't at least try to match that sort of standard or reach for it, then if you fail, it's seen as a personal failing. Mm. And hard work then means work on your body. Yeah. And it problematizes all sorts of bodies that don't fit. And something that I learned very early on was that 
my size wasn't welcome in Korea. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm jumping ahead here, but I do want to talk about the concept of the free size as oh, like gosh. one size fits all. <laughs> one size fits no one. I mean, what? Free size. I have a chapter called Free Size Isn't Free because at so many of the boutiques, so for the cutest clothes, the stylish ones, like the indie boutiques, the clothes come in free size. But free size is the equivalent to a U.S. size two. I felt so unwelcome in Seoul, in my own body, and just appearing as I did. And it wasn't just size, though I think thinness is such a pillar of global beauty standards that it cannot be divorced from lookism. The Venn diagram almost overlaps such that it's one circle. Yeah. You know? yeah, but yeah. it was also having freckles. Yes. I, I was fascinated like, by the freckle thing. Having right? freckles, it was like I might as well have had pus eating boils on my face. But the freckles are a window into how South Korea not only exports these images of beautiful Koreans and sells it and it's tangled up into K-pop, K-drama, and it's cultural and pop culture might around the world. It also exports the medical aesthetic upgrades that you can get mm -hmm. to improve your face and skin and bodies. And so on the freckles front, the comments I would get were something like, oh, you have freckles. We can fix that. Why wouldn't you fix that? Mm. So if the technology or the solution exists to fix the problem, of course, of course. you should get rid of your freckles. Of course, you're not good enough as you are when we have a solution. Like, why not? <laughs> yeah. It makes no sense. It's a really strong parallel with the conversation we're having now around Ozempic, where people are like, well, if it finally exists that there's a drug that you can lose weight, why wouldn't you lose the weight? And there's no discussion. Well, Burnt Toast knows I'm discussing it, but, you know, the mainstream conversation has not been discussing how much that's erasure of people's bodies and people's natural, like freckles are natural. They are part of skin. Like, why do we need to erase the and ways also our bodies just exist? Diversity is part of the human experience exactly. and actually part of nature, too. Right. Like, I don't go to a pet adoption center and only find golden retrievers right. worthy, right? Like, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Our adherence to beauty culture, our adherence to lookism even, because it happens on both sides of the Pacific where I've mm -hmm. lived, mm -hmm. um, is so familiar that we barely notice it. But just as you have said about how the appropriate response to homophobia isn't to make everyone straight and the appropriate response to anti-fat bias or fat phobia isn't to make everybody skinny. The appropriate response to lookism isn't to make everybody pretty, right. except when I lived in South Korea, I found that it was completely logical to make yourself prettier because right. of the professional and personal and social costs if you didn't. And it is then asking people to pay this really high price to opt out of a system when it's that entrenched. Another piece of this I would love you to unpack that was really helpful for me to learn about is I thought I understood a lot of the Korean beauty ideals as being rooted in whiteness, mm, yeah. but they're really not. 
And I wondered if you could talk us through that a little bit because that yes. was super The desire for white skin. Yeah, the yes. desire for white skin certainly predates war and colonization yeah. even. The desire for white skin was about a class performance. This was dating to the earliest dynasties in China, Korea, and Japan. The aristocratic women, the ones who didn't have to go outside, had the fairest skin. And those who had to work the fields had darker skin. And mm-hmm. so there was a real aspiration to whiteness that was about class. And we see throughout civilizations and various time periods that beauty work really is about class. So often when we see people who you would describe as conventionally pretty, you're really describing that they're conventionally wealthy. Right, right. We talk about that enough. It's rich money. Yeah. Right. I I mean, I live in Los Angeles. Yeah. You're you're up in New York. Yeah, we're we're aware of the money. The people yeah. who can exactly the people <laughs> who can look the closest to physical ideals are often the ones who can afford to spend the most money. And another strain that comes out of this is the idea of the no makeup makeup look mm-hmm. or affecting effortlessness out of effort. Mm-hmm. And so, just being able to look like you just got out of bed and didn't put on any makeup is largely the work of lasers or eyelash extensions or skincare treatments that cost thousands and thousands of dollars and lots of time and research and and the labor of other people, which can be extractive, like especially it's in the U.S. And that doesn't get factored into the equation at all. So we should just be aware of it. And concepts like glass skin, that was another fascinating concept you unpacked and how that is a completely manufactured attempt to look natural, sort of. <laughs> right, exactly. Question mark? Think um, about, right, right. Like, think about how many serums or how much care and attention and how much free time you would have to have to devote to getting your skin to a level of sort of looking reflective like glass. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't have that kind of time. And I, I think that most yeah. women do not, you know. No, <laughs> no I, know, I know you're a mom of three. I'm a mom of two. No, I don't have 10-step cleaning practices in my day. That's right, what, I don't right. I don't have 10 steps. I don't want a recipe to have 10 steps. So, you know? Exactly. So, <laughs> Nothing some, can have some 10 of the, steps. Some of the interview questions I've gotten as I've launched this book include sort of what do you do for your skin? And first of all, it focuses on the wrong thing because yeah. this is not an individual thing, right? Like when I get questions like, oh, well, should your daughter shave or laser? I actually think that we're putting the focus on individuals when we shouldn't because it ends up, A, resulting in us sort of judging one another and being Mm -hmm. harder on one another when the focus really should be these cultural forces that keep us on a hamster wheel. But also my answers are so just (laughs) boring. I'm just like, well, I wash my skin and I moisturize. (laughs) Sunscreen seems nice. Right. Sunscreen is the the main takeaway. I I am a thinker on beauty topics, but I am no beauty blogger myself, you know? (laughs) And these are separate things. I mean, I get a lot of those, like, what do you do questions too. And I think it also speaks to how much the system has sold us this idea of personal responsibility and and the labor, the personal labor, as you're saying, 
that this is your job to take care of your body in this way. And so then even when we're critiquing it, we're like, but what do you do? Because we want you to tell us what we can opt out of. And it's a very diet culture mindset. Yeah. And then this personal responsibility then extends, and you do this so well in Fat Talk, it extends to maternal responsibility or parental responsibility. Like the way that mothers get held responsible for their children's weight is something that I saw in South Korea, not just with regard to weight, but also with regard to their children's looks. So mothers and grandmothers were often the ones who were gifting plastic surgery to their high school graduates because they wanted to ensure a brighter and happier future for them. So never mind that we have tangled up health and happiness with good looks. That is already questionable and problematic and wrong. But then Your maternal love gets wrapped up into whether you are helping and assisting your child or teenager in looking, I'm doing air quotes here, Mm -hmm. better. Yeah. And that was really heartbreaking. There's an anecdote that was shared with me by one of the women that I interviewed who talked about how her father made her watch pageant videos so that she could learn how to walk properly and learn how to walk more like a lady. And so she would have to watch those videos every night and then and feel anxious and and self-conscious about her body. And then she would have to actually walk and perform for her father to see whether she had absorbed the lessons of what she was watching on the pageant videos. And I asked her, you know, what happened if you didn't? What happened if you refused? And there was just no notion that she could even refuse, right? right? Because there was the filial piety involved. But she said she worried that her parents would have starved her, you know, because it mattered to them so much that she be able to have a fulfilling life. And that meant being thin enough to find yeah. a partner. Yeah, she said like they basically already were. So mm. I just thought it would get so much worse or something. It was chilling. And it's so it's so easy to want to judge those parents, right? And think like, what were you thinking? Like what a creepy thing to do to your kid. And it is. And also they're trying it was to, economically rational. It's hard to know that your child will face such stigma and derision if you don't participate in this. And I'm curious, so with the parents that you talked to who felt as though they needed to restrict their children's eating, where did they end up landing for the most part after being presented (laughs) with the evidence on how the the long tail effects aren't good, nor do they necessarily maintain, you know, whatever weight they were trying to achieve? I think it was a real range, you know, like there's one mom in the book who I still think about a lot who was really on board with wanting to do things differently and then... The pediatrician shamed her for how much weight her son gained during the pandemic. And she was like, I'm back on Weight Watchers. She's going to the Healthy Weight Clinic. Like, we're back in. And then there were others who were really relieved to realize they could opt out of the system. But I think there's a lot of privilege involved in who can safely opt out. That's true for opting out of beauty culture as well. You know, there are plenty of women who don't have the same privilege of being able to opt out, notably the trans women of South Korea. There is still no anti-discrimination law in South Korea. And trans women feel unsafe all over the world. But in South Korea, they are such outcasts. I think that there's not even a lot of social understanding Mm -hmm. about transgender people. And there were plenty of trans women who said, we also do not, (laughs) we do not support the beauty culture that we live in and find it oppressive. At the same time, appearing femme is a matter of survival for us. 
It's yeah, a, we safety. need to pass in order to safely move about the world without being assaulted. Oh, my gosh. It is so scary. There were parts of it that were so familiar, too. Like the way you said your daughter's the only Korean words they learned was like cute and pretty because that's like how everyone addressed them. And that's true for American little girls, too. Right. Like you're in the diner and the waitress is like, you're so pretty. And I'm just like, and smart. There's like definitely a universality to how we engage with girls as objects from childhood. But it did also seem like there were specific ways it played out. That seemed quite different from, I would say, how it plays out in America. So one reason why the beauty culture in South Korea is so extreme, and there are many factors, one is technology, like the technology infrastructure and that its status as one of the world's first fully wired nations means yes. that it's an increasingly visual and virtual society and it got to becoming more visual and virtual faster than the rest of the world. So that's a huge component of it. But there's also cultural reasons that make the beauty culture a little bit more oppressive or noticeably oppressive. And it's that 97% of Korea is Koreans, which mm. is certainly not the case in the United right, States. Right. And so it was really hard, for example, for me to find cover-up, makeup cover-up, mm -hmm. the BB cream cushion that I get into the history of. Yeah. I couldn't find it in my shade because <laughs> right. I'm a little bit of a darker Asian. And it follows with free size as well, mm -hmm. where there is such a critical mass of people with the same shades and people of the same size that the companies don't go to the trouble <laughs> of yeah. expanding their lines. Yeah. So instead of the clothes changing to fit you, you change to fit the clothes. Instead of the cover-up needing to come in different shades, you just, you know, stay out of the sun. Right? Mm -hmm. Or you just wear a lighter shade. Yeah. So there were often times where I would go get makeup done for a television interview or something in Seoul, and they would just make me chalky white because it was like, <laughs> well, this is what we, we got. And we've covered your freckles. We assume you're thrilled about that. Oh, yes. <laughs> the freckles were gone. I was really fascinated by how it played into the revering of elders and so, again, like kids don't really have these other options. Like for the girl to say to her father, I'm not going to practice the walk, like is just not part of the conversation at all. Yeah. Again and again, there was this theme of like choice, but not a choice. Yes. You know, yes. it's so much of our aesthetic labor, we think, is and often now under capitalism. Of course, late capitalism gets coded as empowerment. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you think you're choosing the new injectable. You're thinking you're choosing the laser removal of your blemishes or whatever. And while that is a choice, it's not necessarily liberation and freedom to be however you want to be. I think about that a lot when people will say to me, but what if I just want to lose weight? Like, just for me. I just want to lose it for me. There's no making that choice in a vacuum here. We're not islands. There's no just for you because you're part of this whole thing. But it even then, I think, gets hard to sort out. I was thinking a lot about pedicures as I was reading this because I remember during COVID, I tracked down the baby foot peel things like because I couldn't go get pedicures. And then I remember doing them one night and being like, I'm not even leaving my house. Like, what? <laughs> am I enjoying sitting with my feet in the bathtub for half an hour so that the skin will all peel off in two days? I don't know if I like this. There is so much beauty work that I do enjoy so long as it doesn't feel sort of like I'm doing it because I'm worried about what others will think. Right. And right. so when I wrote about 
older Korean women, the Ajumas. Yes, I love that. They found a way or have found a way, arrived at a place where they care for one another and care for their bodies in a way that's kind of reciprocal. You know, it's like showing respect for one another. Mm -hmm. So they're not completely unkempt, right? right? Because it's sort of like, oh, this is group cohesion. But they're not competing against one another, yeah. which is the way I think in younger women's groups, like we often, or, you know, we can often kind of get into competitive or hierarchical thinking or feel as though we have to keep up with the Joneses or keep mm -hmm. up with everybody else's Botox right. or whatever it is. And so I think interrogation is key. Like ask yourself, is this an ego-driven decision or does this come from an inner appreciation for my body and what I want for it yeah. and what I want to do to care for it? And also I write about how when women are now outliving men, so often the touch of a beauty worker, so somebody mm -hmm. who is giving you a pedicure or giving you a massage or a facial might be the only time you are touched by another person in the course of a week or a day even. And so there is something really lovely about the touch and that nurturing feeling of beauty workers. And yeah. so I don't reject it out of hand. I certainly don't want Flawless to come off as a polemic. No, <laughs> and it does not. It, no, it, I it love actually sort the... of wrestles with it. And there's a lot to celebrate, I think, about yeah. the way we can care for one another and our our bodies. I just think that it needs to be in a framework of community always yes. and not like, what about me? Right. And being realistic about like, this is a necessary like cost of doing business to exist in this world or in this profession. I mean, a lot of jobs, like you said in Korea, it's common for people to have to put their height and weight and photos on their job applications for like any careers. That's a huge example of the lookism. The other yeah. example is there's myriad matchmaking firms in South Korea. So you can date through the apps, but you can also just go to a matchmaking firm and there's thousands of them. And the matchmaking firms will rate people in terms of specs, like the way that we use specs to describe like the specs of my MacBook Air or the specs oh, wow. of my phone. And so specs have an entire range of things that you're supposed to look like, right? Your specs can include your height, your weight, your bra size, Wow. whether you possess a certain cuteness that will get ranked by the agencies. And so it's just insidious. It's pervasive. It's everywhere. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's, that's a lot. Talk to me more <laughs> about the cuteness then, because that was something really interesting that threaded throughout the cuteness of the packaging, yes. the celebration of cuteness. Like cuteness is a beauty ideal in a yes. way that I hadn't really thought about. And then again, when we're thinking about children, it's like, oh, it also helps them market all these products younger and younger. There's a lot going on with cuteness. So the social and ethnographic research by a philosopher named Heather Widows, whose research undergirds a lot of my book, found that there are four global beauty pillars, and they are thinness, firmness, smoothness, and youth. So I really see cuteness as tied in with mm. youthfulness. And so it's a beauty ideal on one hand, but it also shows up in the way that beauty products are sold. So something that's really distinctive about K-beauty products and that industry is the way that packaging is made to look like food. Yes. Or the form factor continually changes. You know, you'll start as, you know, lip color that came in a tube like lipstick has always, but they'll change it to make it a lip stain that comes out of a nail polish 
container and then it'll change into something else. The churn is very fast and then you can retire and introduce new products constantly. And then because of the cuteness, it seems as though younger and younger groups, younger and younger demographics could participate in it, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're a teenager, you've already been surrounded by these little like fruit-shaped lip balms and moisturizer and milk carton containers or milk carton-like containers since you were in elementary school. So it's only natural that you would creep into using skincare and using makeup products very young because almost seems childlike. (laughs) They seem like toys, yeah. And you talk about the stats on how young kids start wearing makeup there. Yeah, it's usually like six or seven. Yeah, I mean, But not for everyone. That is young, (laughs) I just want to say. Especially because it is time, right, and energy that we could be spending elsewhere. And so when kids are also having to get ready, but then also having to, like, internalize this idea that their existence is for somebody else's eyes, you know, for somebody else's gaze, Mm -hmm. so young. I mean, I hate seeing my eldest daughter is now 10. How old is your oldest? She's almost 10 as well. Okay. Yeah. And I feel like she's now at the age where she's noticing, like, the way she is seen Mm -hmm. and able to articulate it. I'm sure that they notice this much younger. I'm sure they notice it by preschool. And it sort of, it just breaks my heart a little bit, you know, that they're getting this notion very, very young that they have to perform. And for Korean girls, they get little lipstick pockets. Lipstick pockets are part of their school uniforms. So there's an idea that, you know, you need to have lip balm or lip tint inside (laughs) your uniform. It's like a school supply, like you need your pencils and your lip tint. There's definitely something I had to sit with. I feel like a core argument of what I'm doing is to talk about body autonomy. And, you know, one of the sort of casual tips I often give parents is like, don't fight so hard on the hairbrushing, let them pick out their own outfits. And just realizing that there's a lot of like Western privilege underpinning that as a strategy that I hadn't really thought about that mm. I can that I can give my kids that kind of freedom and they won't be policed. You know, if they go to school with their hair unbrushed, I think our school is just like, yeah, well, that's Virginia's kids. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's no like social cost to it, especially for like little thin white girls to show up looking messy. But I join you in these conversations and in the struggle for progress, because to me, progress would be right. being able to opt out. And not pay a price because the demands of beauty culture require tremendous resources and the costs right now, the social costs, the economic costs to opting out are too great. Yeah. So technology is a big part of a lot of these conversations because we are presented and barraged with beauty ideals and thinness ideals through social media. Mm -hmm. But the other end of technology that I think doesn't get talked about enough is all of the self-improvement technology that is now available because when there are advances like, you know, self-checkout, people are like, well... (laughs) I'm going to change my behavior Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to use it. And so when there are advances like lasering off those blemishes mm-hmm. or those freckles from your skin, then there's an assumption that I will use it. Yeah. But crucially, these are all sort of markets that are created for us. And often I think the supply creates the demand. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly true for a lot of things happening with plastic surgery, cosmetic fixes in general, like this mm-hmm. buccal fat removal now, yeah, yeah, which is like the most searched procedure in the United States in 2023. 
I feel like I still don't totally understand what it is. And maybe I'm okay with that, but you should also tell us about yeah, it. Yeah, just like removing excess fat from the jawline. Oh, okay. So that your jaw looks a lot more defined. Looks really, yeah. Gets yes. rid of the double chin. But why are double chins bad? Like, why can't some people right. have puffier faces? You know, why, why, right. can't my, my, why can't my fat distribute however it's going to distribute? <laughs> land where it lands. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's interesting as someone who identifies with small fat. I'm like, I mean, we could take it off my chin, but it, I'd still be fat. So I guess I just sort of ignored that one. <laughs> it's like, that doesn't seem relevant. But I can understand why that's getting pushed so hard. The economics of all of this is just fascinating. I do want you to tell us about the Escape the Corset movement, because I feel like we need a little, we need to bring it up a little, we need a little hope. Gosh. So in South Korea, women are ridiculed for attempting to capitalize on their appearance. So if you get too much plastic surgery or you spend, you seem like you care too much, then you're ridiculed. But then you're also, you're even more ridiculed if you seem like you don't care at all and don't do anything. There's like a very narrow lane of getting it right. Yeah. (laughs) And usually it's like that effortless look. Right. Right. And so the Escape the Corset women are Korean feminists who in 2018, my last year in South Korea, took part in what I would describe as a general strike against aesthetic labor. They were just like, we're not going to do this anymore. And they cataloged how much money and time and energy they were spending on trying to look like the ideal Korean woman. They crushed their compacts and took photos of them with a hashtag like proof of discarded corset. They made videos of them like cutting off all their hair. They now wear largely unisex clothing and appear as they want in a country where their appearance matters the most. And they are often uninvited from family gatherings. They are bullied by their peers. They are chastised by their managers. Some have lost jobs. Some have even been reportedly assaulted as a result of not participating and looking like the ideal Korean woman. But they're so brave and also inspiring because the risks that they take in order to just have bodily autonomy are so much greater than the risks that I take in appearing as I do, which is much like them, you know, on the streets of Los Angeles. They really stick out and they continue to. I had a Zoom with them on Saturday night and it was probably my favorite thing that I've done in the promotion for Flawless because they said, look, under this conservative administration that they're under now in which male pattern baldness and treatment for that is covered by the national health insurance. Wow. But treatment for eating disorders is not. I mean, right. (laughs) That's only the most fatal mental health condition. Why would we? Why would we do that? Oh, my God. But male pattern baldness now covered. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Anyway, so they are really down and discouraged and disillusioned, but continue to fight and continue to organize. And they talk to me about how they want to be good ancestors. You know, they don't want the next generation of men and women coming up in South Korea to feel the same sort of lack of safety and lack of feeling welcome in their own society. And then just the oppressiveness, right, of a locust culture. And so they're continuing to do the work. And I admire it so much because these are huge risks to take. Truly. No, the icons. 
yeah, I don't know what we can do from here to support it. But if you know where we can send dollars or support of any kind, please tell us because that's really I will do that. I will do that. Well, Elise would love to know what your butter is. Mine are the squiggly noodles from Trader Joe's. I've been eating them as a snack. Okay, the squiggly noodles come in a pack like ramen noodles would come in a pack. So instant ramen noodles. And they come with a soy and sesame sauce. And they take, I think, four minutes to prepare. That sounds amazing. And I chop up some cucumbers and maybe some tofu and add gussy up my squiggly noodles a little bit. But they are inspired by the knife-cut noodles of the Sanxi province in China. Okay. And they are awesome. So they come out really squiggly because they mimic the way that knife-cut noodles, oh. when you're shaving them off a block, oh, will come cool. out squiggly. And they are delicious. I mean, I was shocked when I discovered this. I think that my TikTok just sends me like convenient food ideas constantly. (laughs) My TikTok needs to do that. That's the TikTok sub TikTok world that I've fallen into, and I love it. Yeah, I'm in the wrong TikTok world. It brings me so much joy. That's great. Squiggly noodles take four minutes, and I think they cost like less than four dollars. That is an excellent butter. Thank you. What's yours? Well, mine is, I just got my new spring Birkenstocks. Mm. I have a little bit of a love-hate with Birkenstocks because they're very expensive. And you really don't get more than like two seasons out of them. (laughs) So I feel like I buy a new pair every year. But they are the most comfortable shoes. And it makes me so happy. And it really always gives me this moment of reflection because when I first left New York City and moved, I live in the Hudson Valley now. I had like a whole emotional journey about was I going to become a Birkenstock person or not? (laughs) This was like before they were cool. This was like 2008, like before they were like on runways and had gotten their sort of like glow up. And I just think a lot about like 20 something me with so many pairs of high heels at the office. And I still pay for it with the lower back issues. So (laughs) in my 40s, I reflect back and I just wear my Birkenstocks and I'm really happy. And I got them in this cool olive green and I'm very excited about it. I love it. That does sound so comfortable. And it reminds me of that test for what we do or don't do with our bodies when it comes to body care and rituals is if it feels like a greater step into yourself, like the Birkenstocks are for you, then absolutely. Like that's the way to go. But if it feels like you are wearing something or doing something that is more tantamount to a costume, Mm-hmm. like high heels, right. then that choice is also made for you. So that's a great kind of test. Well, and I just think like how hard it was to walk around Manhattan for yeah. years. It was so difficult, but it was, you know, I worked in women's magazines. Like there was no yeah. world in which you didn't wear heels to the office. Oh, it was what the culture required yes. of you. Yes. So much like the Korean women, you know, yeah. this is what the culture requires. And so I have to occupy yeah. space this way. So I would walk to work in my flip-flops and then I left all my shoes under my desk. And then when the last magazine I worked for folded, I had to messenger home like 30 pairs of shoes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so like, glad that that experience has helped informed what you were doing now as a sort of body liberation journalist. And yeah, I join yeah. you in this work. Well, I am so grateful for your work, Elise. The book is incredible. It is called Flawless Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. Everyone needs to check it out. Tell us, how can we support you? Where can we find your work? You can find me at EliseHugh.com, and that's where all the events on the book tour are going to show up and where you can find out more information about the book. I hang out on the dredges of Twitter only occasionally now. (laughs) What's left of Twitter? It's not a great place. Elise WHO. So I'm hanging out more on Instagram at Elise WHO. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you for doing this. 
Thank you. It was delightful. Thank you so much for listening to Burnt Toast. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player, leave us a rating or review, and tell a friend about this episode. It really helps us grow. And consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. It's just $5 a month or $50 for the year. You'll get a ton of cool perks and you keep this an ad and sponsor-free space. Find out more at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soul Smith. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at V underscore Soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Cell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell, and Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting anti-diet body liberation journalism.